for this reading. We thank you for this reading in Matthew that is very difficult for us to put into practice. And we ask, Almighty God, that you would grant us your grace and strength. You would help us to learn of you. Pray that you would grant me the grace I need to expound your word and to explain your word in a manner which is pleasing to you, understandable to your people, and beneficial to all of us. We ask this in the name of the Almighty Word, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we approach this passage, you'll notice a relation to last week's passage. I easily could have preached uh, both sections at once, but I decided to break them up into two sermons um, just for clarity's sake and so that I could go into each passage with a little bit more oomph, a little bit more detail. Now, last week, we heard a very difficult teaching of the Lord, didn't we? This idea that we had to turn the other cheek. And that hard teaching isn't hard to grasp. It's not hard to understand. It's just very difficult and hard to actually do. Turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile with those who are actively persecuting us or insulting us is not an easy thing to do. And what Christ was basically getting at last week is that we are not to assert our legal rights or retaliate when we are inconvenienced or personally insulted. We cannot exist as Christians or settle for average behavior. We may not settle for average behavior. Thinking of Memorial Day, you think of those who who have given the ultimate sacrifice for our country. They're not average, well, they were not average citizens. They're not even average soldiers or sailors or airmen or marines. They walked the hardest path. They gave the ultimate sacrifice. They were nothing if not average. And just as they gave their lives for our country, the Lord gave his life for his church. And we are called as Christians to walk the hard, sometimes nasty, narrow path and to lay our lives down for the brethren, and to fight the war of faith in a different sphere. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines, they fight with physical weapons. We, as Christians, do not have that prerogative. That's the role of the civil government. The church does not have the power of the sword. That is the purview of the civil government, according to Romans 13. We fight with weapons not of this world. We do not fight with the weapons of this world. We fight with spiritual weapons. The Bible is called what? The sword of the spirit. The Bible is the most powerful weapon that a Christian has at his or her disposal. It cuts. It hurts. It batters. It comforts. It encourages But ultimately, it performs surgery on those who hear its word and listen to it. Whether we are Christians or not, the word pierces us and changes us. When we encounter the word, if we're listening carefully, we will walk away differently. Now, just by way of clarification, this law of Christian non-retaliation, it is not a call. It is not a call to a recreant or milk-livered pacifism. It's not what this is for. We have a responsibility 
to stand steadfast for truth and justice. We have a God-given honor and responsibility to protect the innocent, to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Think of what Jesus says about an adult who would cause a child who believes in him to stumble. Chilling words. If anyone causes any one of these little ones who believe me to stumble, it would be better for him or her to have a millstone put around his or her neck and to have that person be dumped into the deep of the sea. Those are Jesus' words. That's a bit of a paraphrase, but that's what he says. And the inference there is that little children can believe and that if we cause them to stumble in their faith, it would be better off if we were executed. So we have to protect these who cannot protect themselves. We need to shelter young hearts who believe from the wiles of this world. If we do not do that, we will not just be recreant, we'll be miscreant. We will be um, abjectly lacking in our duty, cowardly. Or take, for example, if a man is called to provide food, clothing, and shelter for his family. How much more, then, should he protect them from violent predators and intruders, working from the lesser to the greater? Parents, single mother, would have the same responsibility, unfortunately. If we are to protect them, then this is not a call to pacifism. This is a call to non-personal retaliation. We're not allowed to personally avenge ourselves. That is what the text is talking about. And the backdrop of these passages, of course, is the Pharisaic misunderstanding and watering down of these passages. Who wouldn't want to water down these passages? It's extremely tempting to try and find a way around these. Believe me, I tried. I tried to make it easy for you. I tried to make it easy for myself to find a way out of this. But Christ wants us to understand the ramifications of the Christian faith. He wants us to understand the full ramifications of the Christian faith. Listen, he wants us to understand that the Christian faith is hard. It is difficult. It is not easy. Yes, it is a life of joy and love. But love and joy are not worldly occupations. They are aspects of the fruit of the Spirit And only those who are in tune with the Spirit and have the Spirit can actually bear that fruit. And it's not easy. It's not. And as the heat gets turned up on the Christian church in our country, and it will, the ranks will be thinned. The herd will be culled, quite frankly. You don't see many megachurches in Saudi Arabia. Or Israel, for that matter. Why? Because in Saudi Arabia, they'll kill you. And in Israel, they just might kill you, or they'll burn down your church. It's only in the Western world that we have these large megachurches. And they're easy to go to. You can be invisible in those churches. You can go, you can partake of the worship, and it may be fine worship, but then you don't have to do anything else. Nobody might know your name. They might not know your foibles. They certainly won't know your sins. They won't know your fallenness. And you can leave, grab a coffee on the way out, and everything is just hunky-dory. 
But eventually, those churches, when the heat gets turned up on Christians, the flock will be thinned. It's just going to happen that way. Now, if you think last week's teaching was hard, then please hold on to your seats because it's only going to get harder for the next 15 or 20 minutes. As I said, I tried to make it easy on you. I tried to find a way around this, but I just couldn't do it. I can't mitigate the force of these words. Today in Matthew 5, 43 and 48, what we read earlier will challenge us to achieve a level of Christian maturity that can only be categorized as superhuman and supernatural. We're fascinated by the supernatural, aren't we? And children, particularly boys, are fascinated by superheroes. Why? Because those personages can do things that we can't do. They're not average. They're extraordinary. Would you like to be extraordinary? Would you like to be superhuman? Would you like to be supernatural? Well, if that's the case, and I think you would like to be, then you need to supersede average behavior. And today what Jesus wants us to know is that we must love our enemies. We must love our enemies. There is nothing more superhuman than that. And I'm going to guess that a few of you are just a tad uncomfortable at the moment. And you're squirming in your seats, wondering if I'm able to peer into your heart where you're saying, I don't want to do that, Pastor. Can I just go to sleep and come back next week for something a little easier? No, you can't. You may not. It's against the rules. This is hard. The problem is we don't know how to love our enemies. And those of us who know how to love our enemies, let's just be frank, we just don't want to do it. It's not any fun. It's just not. There's nothing like getting even with somebody. Very few things satisfy us as deeply, yet temporarily, as getting even with somebody who's hurt us. It feels good, doesn't it? It does. Just admit it. God knows that it feels good. You know it feels good. I know that it feels good. But the feeling ultimately will be hollow. Anybody can do it. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a superhuman or a superhero to get even with somebody. Anybody can do it. A two-year-old child can do it. You can probably do it even before age two. Probably before age two, people start getting back at each other. Jesus wants more from you. He's giving you the chance to do more. But it won't be easy. It won't be easy whatsoever. The other thing is we have to understand this. Let's, let's be brutally honest here. Within the church, the capital C, whether it's a big church or a small church, there are some people who profess the name of Christ, who are baptized members in good standing of various churches, this one included, who are just nasty, vindictive, harsh, angry with members of their own family and their own fellow church members. Now, if someone has a hard time loving those who are closest to them, how much more difficult do you think it's going to be for them to love their enemies? If you can't love your fellow church members truly self-sacrificially, then 
I don't want to depress you, but loving your enemies, it's not going to happen. You have to put one before the other. If you can't love your own family members, then loving your enemies is going to be exceedingly difficult, and it is a brutal tragedy when Christians view other Christians as their enemies. That's the root of a selfish, child-ish attitude. Christ calls us to child-like faith, not child-ish behavior and attitudes. There are precious few adults in the world. Precious few adults. The children are running the world. And children are largely inhabiting the church. But Christ is here calling us to full-blown adulthood. It's sad to say that there are some Buddhists who have mastered this loving the enemies better than some Christians. And they don't have the love of Christ in their heart. They're just passive. But we'll see from this passage that Christ isn't looking for a passive love. He's looking for something a little bit more. He's looking for something active. Now immediately in verse 43, Jesus gives the Pharisees another backhanded slap. That phrase, hate your enemy, it's not in the Bible. It's not. You have heard it was said, love your brother, love your neighbor, depending on the translation, and hate your enemy. That hate your enemy is not in the Bible. What had happened is the Pharisees logically deduced and made a bad inference, a bad conclusion, that if we're to love our neighbor, then that makes sense that we should then hate our enemy. If we are to love our brothers and sisters within the covenant, then we must hate our enemies. Jesus is here telling them, no, 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 that is a wrong conclusion, boys. And we learn a lot of interesting things here. A very interesting point is that the Pharisees were Jesus' enemies. This is the beginning of his ministry. He's setting the table for all of the conflicts that will come in the next three years. The Pharisees were Jesus' enemies. And Jesus is here commanding us to love our enemies. Therefore, we have to conclude that Jesus loved his enemies. So the next conclusion is that loving your enemies doesn't mean that you never speak up for the truth. You're allowed to correct your enemy's errors. This isn't a call for just sitting around and letting them go, particularly with regard to the person of Christ. We have a responsibility to correct our enemy's thoughts on Christ. That's called witnessing. It's called evangelism. If somebody's going around and saying all kinds of nasty things about Christ, They're proving to you that they are your enemy and his enemies. And loving them is not not saying anything. In that case, you have to correct them. Jesus is correcting his enemies here. He's telling them in an offhanded way, in a backhanded way, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. Now, we have to be careful that we distinguish between our personal opinions and biblical facts. It's very easy for all of us to take our opinions 
and put them on a little throne and make them coexist with God's truth. It's very easy to do that. We have got to allow the Bible to wash our opinions, not to impose our opinions upon the Bible. That's where a lot of strife comes in the church. That's where a lot of strife comes within Christian families, when opinions supersede the revealed truth of God. When opinions supersede the revealed truth of God. The Word of God has got to be the final law. It's the only rule of faith and obedience. It's easy to have opinions, and we all have them. The question is, are our opinions based upon Scripture, or are they based upon our fears, or our prejudices, or just something we've inherited from our family? Oh, my family's just been this way for hundreds of years, or whole generations. Well, that, that may be so, but that doesn't make it right. The chain has got to be broken somewhere. This cycle has got to be stopped somewhere. And that is what Jesus is calling us to do. Now in verse 44, Jesus moves on to his command. Love your enemies. How are we to love our enemies? What's the nuts and bolts of this command? Well, if you look at the text, there are at least three things that we must do. We have to bless our enemies. We have to do good to our enemies. And we have to pray for our enemies. Love, in the biblical sense, isn't a feeling. Love isn't a thought process. It involves feelings, and it certainly involves thought processes, but it is rooted and established in concrete acts. It's rooted and established in concrete acts. Within the context of a marriage, you'll often hear, well, I love you. I say I love you all the time. Well, have you shown it lately? How do I know that you love me? children sometimes when they're being corrected will say well I don't feel as if you love me Hmm. and we have to correct our children and say well my love for you isn't just a feeling that roof over your head that bed that you're sitting on that food that's in your belly that's proof positive that I love you the fact that I'm trying to correct you is proof positive that I love you it's not just a, a feeling it's actually more than a feeling Hollywood has denigrated love to the point where it's just a feeling. Most of us would have problems with blessing, doing good, and praying, but let's take them in reverse order. Pray for those who are your enemies. How how is your prayer life these days? May I ask? Do you pray for your loved ones? Do you pray for yourself? Do you pray for this church? Did you pray last night for my sermon? Did you pray for yourself listening to the sermon? Do you pray for the lost? Who you know? Bear in mind, I haven't mentioned enemies yet. I'm just talking about your prayer life with those who you love. Or are you in the habit of just sending forth arrow prayers? Lord, please help me get through this day. And we all do that. Or please heal mom. Or heal Uncle Joe. Or whoever. Something quick. But is your prayer life rich and deep? If you're not praying for this church, if you're not praying for your fellow Christians, the missionaries that we support, if you're not praying for the life of the church, if you're not praying for those closest to you that you love, how on earth can you possibly pray for your enemies? It's not, let's be realistic, it's not going to happen. It's not. Most of us find it very difficult to pray for those that we love because prayer is deep spiritual warfare. It's like trench warfare. 
The evil one would rather have you read your Bible than pray. And the evil one would rather have you read the newspaper than read the Bible. Because prayer is very difficult. You could sit down, any of you could sit down and read your Bibles for a half hour. I know that most of you aren't in the habit of doing that. You should develop that habit. But you could do it. Try praying for a half hour. See what happens. Your mind will begin to wander. Sinful thoughts will come into your mind. We have to ask ourselves, why? Because of the unseen world. There is an unseen world there, you know. There is an evil one. There are evil demons. There are angels who protect the church. There's a battle within our own hearts between good and evil. We walk by faith, not by sight. But Christ is here calling us to pray for our enemies and to do good to them. This is in the physical world. We would probably find it easier to pray for our enemies than to actually physically do good for them. Ah, he just did that to me. I'll go home and pray for him. No, no. You have to physically and actually do good things to and for them. And then you have to bless them. This is most likely in the area of speech. Speak kindly to them. Speak gently to them. The book of Proverbs is a wonderful place to begin your trek to godly character and loving your enemies. Because the book of Proverbs talks a lot about our speech. The words that we use can kill people. We kill them. We can kill their spirits. And Jesus is telling us to bless not just those who we love, but bless our enemies. Now you see, we can learn a lot of lessons from this passage. The first thing most of us will realize is hey, I'm not even doing these things for my fellow Christians. I'm not even doing these really as best as I can for my family. I'm not even doing these things as best I can for my children. How then can I progress? You start with one step at a time. We should be convicted about these things. God calls parents to give blood, sweat, and tears. And many of us say, I'm giving blood, I'm giving sweat, I'm giving tears. But particularly us men, if we look deep down, we'll realize I had a little bit more in the tank. (laughs) I had a little bit more in the tank when I lost my temper with those kids. Jesus is calling us to be gentle with our enemies. But if we're not gentle with our children and our loved ones, how, how on earth are we going to ever obey this commandment and make no mistake It is a commandment. And please note the qualities of the enemies in this passage. They're real. They're doing things to us. And Jesus also assumes that we will have enemies. There's no if-then in this passage. He's just assuming that we will have enemies. What does Paul tell us? Well, he tells Timothy. And then he tells us. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 How's your enemy list these days? If you live a godly life, you will have enemies. If you don't live a godly life, the world will accept you. They'll accept you with open arms. Being a Christian means standing out apart from the crowd, being different. It means being different. In verse 45, we find the reason why we're to love our enemies. We find the reason 
This is the ground, the basis. And it's the common grace of God. God sends sunshine and rain and blessing upon all persons to a lesser or greater degree, irrespective of whether or not they are in the covenant, whether or not they are in the visible church or not. That's perplexing. We see persons who are actively evil, really evil, with fat bank accounts and what we think are easy lives. And we see Christians living on a few thousand dollars a year in poor countries. And we wonder, where is the justice in that? Jesus is saying, look, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. And that is the reason why we must be indiscriminately kind and generous and loving to all persons, especially our enemies. In other words, Jesus is saying, God is kind to those who hate him, If you want to be called his children, if you want to be his sons and daughters, then you must be kind and generous to those who hate you. There is no choice. Well, there is a choice. You can choose to ignore it and obey it. There's a scathing comparison here in verses 46 and 47. Jesus is saying, look, if you love those who love you, if you do good to those who love you, If you greet those who greet you, big deal. Everybody does that. And even the tax collectors do this. Now, again, these tax collectors aren't IRS agents. They're IRS agents on steroids. They're more like mafioso. They're religious traders. The tax collectors in this case were Jewish people who were working for the Roman government. So, they're religious traders who were hated. Remember, one of the complaints against Jesus is, look, this guy eats with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. Nobody likes to pay taxes, but these tax collectors were religious traders, and there were, there were checks and balances in Old Testament economics, but there wasn't a computer trail. So they could be very, very corrupt. Zacchaeus is probably the most famous tax collector in the New Testament, And when he gets saved, when he gets regenerated, when he trusts Christ, what does he say? If I have, paraphrase here, if I have defrauded anybody, I'll pay back four or five times. Being defrauded by these tax collectors was par for the course. What could you possibly do? You weren't a Roman citizen, and the tax collectors were in cahoots with the Romans. They had the political power, power of extortion, power of theft. And Jesus is saying, look, even these dreads of society are kind and loving to those who love them. So if you just do that, what more have you done than the others? That's a haunting phrase in verse 47. Let me ask you this. What have you done in the last week or the last month that is qualitatively different than those around you as a Christian? What acts of conscious Christian kindness have you done differently than those around you? What have you done more than others? You see, Jesus is calling us to be superhuman, to be above average. And I'm sure you're feeling, oh, man, can't do this. You should have had, you can realize how much fun it was preparing this sermon. I put my hands out like this, 
there's always at least a number. If I point one finger at you guys, there's, there's a half dozen pointing back at me. The conviction first comes upon the pastor. You're never going to obey this law perfectly. It's not going to happen. You can't keep God's law perfectly in this life. It won't happen. But what we have to understand, and here's, there's a couple of, I might even do two sermons here. I might, because I'm, time is quickly slipping into the future. No mere man or woman since the fall is able to keep the law of God perfectly. We do daily sin in thought, word, and deed. You will never obey this perfectly. The question is, are you willing to even try? Are you prepared to walk the hard road? This is signing up for war. This isn't signing up to be a mall cop during peacetime. There's nothing wrong with being a mall cop. It's a perfectly legitimate way to make a living. It's generally speaking not dangerous. What this is calling for here is signing up for the armed forces during wartime and requesting frontline duty. Drop me off on the beach. Let me get shot at. That's what this is calling for. In the spiritual world, are you willing to do that? The answer is yes, or the answer is no. Once upon a time in the Middle East, there was a man who hated Christ, hated his church, hated Christians. There's a lot of people in the Middle East who don't like Christians. But this man was an active persecutor. He dragged Christians into court. He dragged families into court. He killed them, and he was pleased to murder Christians because he considered Christians to be infidels, enemies of God. And he thought that he was on the right side of God by persecuting them. They were his mortal enemies and he viewed Christians as worthy of death and persecution and brutality. That man's name was Saul of Tarsus. Eventually he became the Apostle Paul. Something happened on the way to work one day. He was literally going to work. And he had an encounter with the risen Christ that changed his life. And he realized the Christians aren't the enemies. I'm the enemy of God. Paul says these wonderful things to us in the book of Romans. Listen carefully to this as I conclude. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by, his, by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friends, Christ died for his enemies. You were once his enemy. He's on that cross. He's battered. He's brutalized. He's bloody. His enemies are mocking him. They are scorning him. They are laughing at him. They are taunting him. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This passage in Matthew is a simple call to Christ-likeness. Are you willing to forgive your enemies? Those who have truly hurt you and enjoy doing it. 
Are you willing to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? If Christ died for you when you were an enemy, then the very least we can do is be kind to our enemies and pray for them. And I call you to go forth and do just that. Would you pray with me? Lord, these are hard words to do. And we ask that you would grant us the grace of your spirit to do just these things. In your son's precious name, amen.